What do you consider to be the result of your decision to kill them? Nothing. What is it, then? Okay. And what was it that prompted you to act this way just now? I really have no idea. Hello. My name is Cameron Rogers. And the footage from this surveillance camera captures the awkward moments when he admits to having killed both of his parents. It will become abundantly clear to you throughout the course of this investigation that Cameron is a deeply unsettling person. However, what led him to behave in such a horrible manner with the people who loved him the most? And what were the horrifying occurrences that took place on that unlucky day? Everyone, I'd want to say hello and welcome you all back for yet another case. This morning, we will be discussing the case of Cameron Rogers. In Canada, the surveillance state that caught Cameron confessing to the crime has gained a lot of notoriety. But what precisely is the backstory behind it? And by the way, were you aware that every day I post mysteries here, both solved and unresolved, as well as weird cases? Therefore, if you find that kind of content interesting, we ask that you kindly consider subscribing to our channel. Friends, we are going to go right into this discussion, so take a deep breath and walk with me through the dark. This is the case of Cameron Rogers. Today, we make another trip to Canada, one of the safest countries in the world to live in when it comes to land mass, which is known for its wide landscapes and harsh terrain. It is only surpassed in size by Russia, which is considered the largest country in the world. Its landscape is characterized by a large number of mountains and forests, and practically all of Canada's land mass is covered in forests as a direct result of the country's low population density. When you get too far away from a village or city, you'll realize that you're completely isolated in the wilderness by yourself. In the urban centers of these countries, you can also find cities that are distinctly contemporary and forward-thinking. And in keeping with our urban theme, we're going to spend the day in Ottawa, which is the nation's capital and a very lovely city. One and a half million people call the city of Ottawa, which is situated on the banks of the river that bears its name, home. A significant number of the city's citizens are newcomers which is, of course, evidence that Ottawa is a very desirable location to live. The Rogers family resides in the Redovy neighborhood, which is located beside the river. The Rogers family is comprised of three members, Dave and Merrill Glady Rogers, both of whom are in their 60s, and Cameron Rogers, who was adopted when he was 22 years old. Dave and Merrill were older parents in the year 2016, when they were 69 and 63 years old respectively. Even though they were in their 40s when they adopted Cameron, they didn't let the fact that they were older prevent them from participating in any activities that younger parents would be able to do. Dave Rogers embodied everything that was great about Ottawa. He was born and reared in this location attended high school in the neighborhood, and then went on to Carleton University, where he earned degrees in both political science and journalism. He is a native of this community. After obtaining this degree, 
Dave was subsequently employed by the Ottawa Citizen, a local media outlet, where he worked happily throughout his whole professional career until retiring 37 years later. He had a reputation for being an upbeat and optimistic individual in the community. In spite of the horrific events that he was required to observe and report on as part of his line of work, he never once grumbled and managed to get the job done every time. On the other hand, Merrill had a bone-crushing disposition. She was born into a military family in Alberta, and in order to follow in her family's footsteps, she entered the Canadian military after earning a degree in linguistics from the University of Ottawa. Her family has a long history of service in the military. As a result of her name being confused with that of a man, she was enrolled on the men's combat training, and as it turned out, she was one of the first four women to finish the entire combat course. This was a first for women even going so far as to assist in the development of future training for new recruits. Dave and Merrill would eventually meet at a cycling club in Ottawa, and fast forward two years later, they would get married and begin their exciting lives together as a couple. The country of France held a special place in both of their hearts, and they spent a lot of time there. Both of them were bilingual, which is an ability that, sadly, is becoming increasingly rare in Canada. The couple had always expressed an interest in starting their own family, but for reasons that they chose to keep hidden, they were unable to produce any children and instead chose to raise their children through the process of adoption. Now, the Rogers family was an excellent candidate for adoption, and the adoption agency didn't have to wait very long before extending an offer to them. Because of this, in the year 1994, men made room in their lives for the newborn Cameron. The new role of fatherhood came easily to the couple, and people who were close to the family observed that they were completely devoted to Cameron. They devoted their lives to him and loved him without conditions or conditions of any kind. They never failed to give him their complete and undivided attention at any time. As a result, when Cameron started having issues in school, parents began to worry that he might have some learning difficulties. The parents soon found out that their son had ADHD and likely also had autism. The fact that Cameron had cancer, however, had no impact whatsoever on their love for one another. Simply put, they were in a better position to support him and his requirements. Cameron had what appeared to be a happy childhood, and his parents provided him with a wealth of amazing opportunities and experiences. Some of these include vacations in other countries, cruises, and lots of time spent in the beautiful outdoors of Canada. However, after finishing high school, Cameron did not appear to have a clear idea of what he wanted to do with the rest of his life, nor did he seem particularly motivated to figure it out. David Merrill was troubled by this information, and as a result, his friends and family eventually persuaded him to attend college, where he studied mechanical engineering, just like I did. Despite the fact that Cameron agreed with his parents' choice, 
he interpreted it as an attempt on their part to exert their authority over him. In actuality, however, his parents were just trying to position Cameron for success in the years to come. Because they were becoming older, they wanted to make sure that Cameron could take care of himself financially, despite the fact that his degree would help him develop a profession and give financial support in the future. In addition to continuing his education, Cameron intended to get a part-time employment. But David Merrill didn't think this was a good plan, and in their kind-hearted nature, they wanted him to concentrate on his academics instead of spending time with them. They reasoned that this would be the best way to resolve the conflict. Whatever it was that he wanted to buy, he could obtain it for free in exchange for doing some work around the house or in the garden. But Cameron detested the arrangement in every possible way. It bothered him that every time he made a purchase, he would be required to detail exactly what it was that he was purchasing. Although it's true that David Merrill was only attempting to be helpful, Cameron didn't place much importance on this fact. In any case, he had no intention of finishing the course he was enrolled in. Cameron's thoughts were always clouded with resentment due to the fact that his parents controlled his every action. This sentiment remained with him, regardless of whether it pertained to his academic pursuits, his professional life, or his finances. As a direct consequence of this, he and his parents had frequent fights, which frequently culminated in the three of them yelling at each other and shouting at each other. But despite this, there was never any progress made. It was never anything but the same tired tale. This frustration developed over the course of time, and although Cameron was able to contain these feelings below the surface for the most part for the time being, it was only a matter of time until these emotions would boil over. Regardless, the repercussions of all of this would be more worse than anyone could possibly have ever envisioned they would be. The morning of November 20, 2016 started out just like any other day. A birthday party was being held, and the Rogers family was invited to attend. They decided to go later that afternoon, and furthermore promised to bring a dish over to the party in exchange for their invitation. However, by the time afternoon had arrived and the clocks had reached the time specified in the invitation, the Rogers family was nowhere to be seen. After a number of hours had passed, it became quite clear that they would not be able to attend the activities scheduled for that evening. Friends tried to get in touch with you to see if everything was okay, but they didn't hear back from you. And as the number of days that passed without word continued to increase, concerned family members and friends became concerned. Because the Rogers were known to keep a low profile and value their privacy. No one was concerned enough about their absence to report it to the authorities and request that they check on their well-being. It's possible that they took Cameron out of town for the week and told the neighbors that some of them remembered seeing a dim light coming from one of the bedrooms at night, but that it was probably just a timed switch. However, after nine long days of stillness and being away from the location for 120 miles, 
a very awkward and terrifying phone call was made to the emergency number 9-11. Hello. Hello. I would like to admit to having committed a murder. Now, tell me, where exactly are you? In point of fact, I am walking down a street in Montreal. I am not familiar with the location of the street. You have to let me know if you want me to send someone else, all right. I have to agree with you there. However, I am located close to a parking garage. You need to be more precise about what you mean. Please provide me with an address and a direction. I am going to locate the street name as well as an address. It's worth a go, at least. Tovyuthi, I will go up to the corner of the street where it is located. What is your street name? And who did you murder? My mum and dad. So, where exactly do they call home? They make their home in Ottawa. I'm curious, what's your name? I introduce myself as Cameron. Cameron. Cameron Rogers. What age are you currently? I'm 20. 22. 22, okay. Are you planning to continue to sit there on the corner? Yes, sir. Okay, I'll have someone come in and have a conversation with you there. Just take a look at what's happening. The caller's name was Cameron Rogers once more, and it is very clear that he wasn't entirely aware of what he was doing during the entirety of this phone call. Neither did he understand the seriousness of the predicament that he was in. Officers were summoned to the residence of Dave and Merrill at the same time as Cameron was being picked up from the side of the road and as it was 10 o'clock at night when they arrived there. That evening, they made the dreadful discovery of two dead in the basement. Both victims had been cruelly trapped behind a shed in their backyard. Dave was discovered within a suitcase, while Merrill was located within a talk. It goes without saying that both of their bodies had frozen solid as a result of the severe winter that Canada endured. However, Law enforcement swiftly arrested Cameron and held him in custody before deciding to charge him with the murder of Dave and Merrill Rogers. The next morning, we began our interrogation of the suspect. Okay. How are things going for you? Good. You're okay. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Do you have my name in your memory? No. If I'm not mistaken, this is our first time meeting, right? Yeah, okay, so my name is Teresa. I'm a member of the Ottawa Police Department and I'm... I share my workplace with a police officer. This organization's major crime unit. Are you okay? Today was our very first meeting, and it was a pleasure. Right. Throughout the course of the interrogation, just Cameron appeared puzzled. Nevertheless, Teresa Kelm approached him in a way that was both light-hearted and compassionate. And during all of his responses, it was never clear that Cameron was trying to mislead anyone. Why did you think that killing them would bring you any closer to your goals? Nothing. What is it, then? Okay. And what was it that prompted you to act this way just now?
I really have no idea. Despite the fact that Cameron stuttered, he was never afraid to give the interrogator the information that she was looking for. Throughout the entire procedure, he presented an air of complete disinterest. I have no idea what possessed me to act in that manner. It was exactly like this. So what exactly had transpired with Dave and Merrill Rogers? And what had led Cameron to the decision to take the lives of his adoring parents? It comes out that on the first day of the family's silence, Merrill was preparing herbs, which you would add to the meal that she was intending to take to the party with Cameron nearby. Merrill was doing this while Cameron was present. She had requested him to help her cook the melon, and he reluctantly agreed to do so after she asked him to do so. The night before, Cameron's family engaged in one of their frequent disagreements, and despite the fact that he had gotten some sleep, he was still in a foul mood as a result of it. Cameron picked up the melon and placed it on the cutting board in front of him. After retrieving a knife from the drawer, he started making cuts while simultaneously reflecting on what had transpired the previous evening. He had had it up to his eyeballs with being told what to do and yearned for the opportunity to direct the course of his own life. While he was watching the knife cut into the flesh of the melon, his mind wandered into the land of frightening thoughts. He started to imagine how simple it would be to go to his mother and use the knife on her. In his fantasies, he did it all the time. They would lose all authority over him if his parents moved away, since they would no longer be able to supervise him. I guess I'm simply struggling to wrap my head around this particular concept. You're slicing melons, but what was your mother doing in the kitchen? She appeared to be engaged in some activity, possibly involving herbs. I have no idea what the problem was. She appeared to be pulverizing some kind of substance. Okay. And how did you find the morning? This occurred somewhere about 11 o'clock. So, tell me, what exactly was going on in the house that morning? I really have no idea. Have you ever been into a fight with either of your parents? The whole upstanding or not upstanding debate. The whole disagree vs. agree debate over school and employment, and everything else was simply weighing heavily on my shoulders. And by the way, just so you understand, we have been in disagreements in the past, all right, and heated ones that are yelling. I was probably slicing a melon right at the moment when the cloud broke, which was about that time. Cameron's choice was finally made after an absurdly long period of contemplation lasting 15 minutes. He ambled over to the garage and retrieved a piece of wood to use as a stake. Despite the fact that the function of the stake was never intended to be for violent acts, that all of that would, sadly, be subject to change. After that, he went back to the kitchen, approached his mother and stabbed her in the back of the head squarely. Merrill let out a piercing scream of agony as she crashed to the ground below. Even while this stake did not have the necessary sharpness to be lethal, it did cause a tremendous amount of hurt and anguish. The things that Cameron did would not go unnoticed by anyone. 
The terrified guy rose up and ran towards the kitchen as soon as he heard his wife crying from the other side of the house. When he arrived there, he found Cameron standing above Merrill. Before Cameron could fully realize what was going on, he shoved the stake into his father's chest, puncturing his lung in the process. Then, he grabbed two knives from the kitchen counter and took both of his parents, stabbing each of them many times. Both of Cameron's parents died as a result of their injuries. Merrill remained in the same position on the floor of the kitchen, groaning in agony as the hours passed. Cameron had waited outside the room for her to pass away because he was unable to bear being in the same space as her when she was in her final moments. Okay, and your mother, you mentioned that she was in the kitchen, right? Okay. But where was your dad all this time? He was somewhere else. In addition to that, I am unsure of the specifics. Okay. Could you just walk me through the steps that your father took to complete it? Both of these things take place in the kitchen. Okay. How did it happen that your dad was in the kitchen? After I had finished with my mother, he came running, and then I finished with him. Okay. Okay. Got it. Okay. Okay, got it. How long did it take you to finish? Just what exactly do you mean? How many years have passed since your mother? You see, it didn't take very long for my dad, but it took a very long time for my mom. Okay, the phone started ringing in the kitchen at that time. And because Cameron didn't want to appear suspicious, he picked up the phone when it rang. He overheard his Uncle Graham's voice, and he was pleading with his sister to talk to him. Cameron responded to his uncle with a white lie, claiming that Merrill was sick and needed to relax in bed, but that other than that, everything was okay. But this is all happening in the meantime, only a few feet away from the phone. Merrill was found lying on the floor, apparently dead. It was quite challenging since she was in discomfort and all I wanted was for it to end. And despite the fact that she was in discomfort and my desire was for her to be free from that discomfort, I was unable to put an end to it even though I tried throughout the night. But then what? It took the entirety of the night for her to pass away, right? How did you come to the conclusion that it took the entire night? I'm not sure precisely what happened, but I walked to my room and she was still in pain when I got there. But I didn't help her because I didn't want to. Merrill would only pass away after a few long hours, in contrast to Dave, who would die nearly immediately. Her last minutes were almost certainly spent in excruciating pain, both literally and psychologically. She had been deceived by the kid she had grown and loved, a son who was upstairs waiting for her to leave. The betrayal had occurred while the son was watching her from above. Perhaps she would still be alive today if Cameron had dialed 911 after the assault he committed against her. However, this is something that, tragically, we will never find out. The next step in his strategy was to get rid of or, at the very least, relocate the dead bodies. After that, Cameron went downstairs, 
put their bodies in a suitcase and covered them with a tarp, moved them behind a shed at the far end of the garden, and then cleaned up the kitchen. Why don't we talk about how those people got out of the building in the first place? They were placed there by me. In that case, when exactly did you place them there? After they had passed away. Okay, and how exactly did you bring them around to the back of the room? So, I ended up dragging my mother behind me in a talk. Okay, after that. After placing my dad into a suitcase, you took him out again. So, how exactly did you manage to cram him into that suitcase? To tell you the truth, I kind of rolled him into it. All okay, no problem. Did anything special need to be done to get him to get inside the suitcase? To put it simply, that wasn't the ideal situation. I didn't make him fit. Okay. The fact that Cameron's parents owned a steam cleaner and that he was able to use it to wipe the blood off the kitchen floor is a stroke of good luck on his part. After that, he got rid of the knives and the ruined steak by throwing them away in the garbage can that was kept in the garage by the family. The plan that Cameron devised to cover up his crime was almost as inept as the choice he made to murder his parents' life. In spite of all of his cleaning efforts, evading the law was not a plan or intention of his at any point. Simply put, he did not want his extended family to witness the bodies of his parents. After he had killed his parents, Cameron did not leave the house for a full week after the crime. And during that time, he spent the majority of it in his bedroom, venturing into the kitchen just to retrieve some food or a snack from the refrigerator. During the course of the week that he spent in hibernation, after then, he gave some thought to the following step that he ought to take. He was well aware that he could not remain in Canada because there was a high probability that he would be discovered there. However, if he were to cross the border, there is a possibility that he would be able to establish a new life for himself, comparable to the choice he made to murder his parents. These views were naive, hasty, and foolish, yet, he would endeavor to do exactly what they suggested. After giving it some thought for a week, he finally decided to empty out the contents of his mother's purse, take as much money as he could, and then go. Correct. So what we're going to do now is figure out how you got to Montreal in the first place. I travel by rail. Oh, I see. You travel by train. Okay. Then tell me how you got from your residence to the train station that you went to. How did you get there? Road in Tremblay named after Tremblay. Okay. And how did I operate the vehicle? You drove. Whose car is this? My mom's. Your mom. And what was the purpose of your recent trip to Montreal? However, I am responsible for paying for the gas. Okay. I was unaware that I possibly could have done it. If I had to pay more for additional petrol, I wouldn't be able to genuinely afford to purchase additional gas. Right? Okay. After that, you traveled to Montreal via rail, right? Yeah. 
When did you first make your way into the city of Montreal? Monday morning, 8.30 a.m. After arriving in Montreal, Cameron bought a ticket on a bus heading to New York. On the other hand, while he was at the border, he announced that he was planning to relocate to the United States, and as a consequence was requested to submit a visa, which he was obviously unable to produce. Because of this, Canadians who are only going to be vacationing in the United States do not require a visa to enter the country. Therefore, telling the officials at the border that he wanted to move was a really weird thing for him to do, and it reveals how little he thought his idea through. Cameron, who was disoriented, disoriented, and without a destination, ambled through the streets of Montreal, attempting to figure out what he should do next. Cameron was exhausted by this point in the day since the day was going on in years. So at 9.15 p.m. And then, eight long days after his parents had been murdered, he made the decision to contact 911. Everything that Cameron would eventually confess to being a reality was, unfortunately, found to be a sickening truth. And during the course of the five days that the forensic teams had spent searching the home, they discovered all of the evidence that was necessary to indict him. And curiously enough, there was no reason for him to kill David Merrill other than the fact that he wanted to. Even during his interrogation, Cameron did not provide any convincing justifications for his actions. Therefore, I am aware that you are slicing melons. And that was at approximately 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning. What prompted you to act in that manner? It was a remark or action that was made. Actually, it was nothing more than a whim on the spur of the moment. I can't even begin to guess. It took me around half an hour to make up my mind whether or not to carry it out, as I went back and forth between considering doing it and deciding against it. Okay. Okay, got it. What was it that made you want to do it in the first place? Why do you believe that you wanted to carry it out in the first place? I don't recall. Okay, okay, got it. After everything that took place, Cameron was arrested and charged with two counts of murder in the first degree, to which he would later plead not guilty. His defense argued that it was a crime that was committed on the spur of the moment, and that due to his autism diagnosis, he should be held to a lesser degree of culpability for his acts. This is in spite of the fact that during his interrogation he stated that his autism was merely mild. Cameron's defense didn't go smoothly. All of his confessions had demonstrated that his crimes were not committed on the spur of the moment. He had deliberated over his actions for almost an hour before carrying them out, and the fact that he had left his mother to suffer on the kitchen floor for several hours rather than calling for emergency help would also demonstrate that he is a dangerous person. Cameron had also attempted to hide the bodies, made an effort to get rid of any evidence that may be used against him, and had even tried to depart the scene. All of these things point to the fact that he was aware that what he was doing was unethical. The trial of Cameron commenced in the month of December in 2018. 
After the remarks that were made by the prosecution to start off the trial, it was time for Cameron's defense team to make their arguments. But at this point, almost out of the blue, Cameron disclosed to his attorneys that he had been the victim of sexual abuse at the hands of his father for the better part of his life. This statement changed everything about the trial, and if it were accurate, it would shift the path his defense team would take quite an incredible amount. The question that remained, though, was why he had not notified them any earlier. As a result, the court proceeding was ruled a mistrial, and the jury was eventually discharged. This meant that from this point forward, the judge would be responsible for making all decisions regarding Cameron's future. But as his defense team was trying to get this new information out of Cameron, his tail fell apart, and he revealed that he made up the claim in a panic. This occurred while his defense team was trying to get this new information out of Cameron. After several days had passed with no jury present, the trial continued. And once this process got underway, Cameron was required to listen to a total of 24 victim impact statements from David Merrill's close friends and family. These testimonies were provided by Cameron's friends and family members who had known him from childhood and who deeply cared for him in an effort to prevent the trial from moving forward. Cameron Rogers was presented with the opportunity to enter guilty pleas to two charges of first-degree murder by the judge. However, he ultimately chose not to do so. Cameron entered a guilty plea for both charges, and as a result, he was given a sentence that included a life sentence without the prospect of parole for the next 20 years. This indicates that Cameron might theoretically live his life as a free man in the year 2038. The members of his family who are not related to him by blood do not approve of this punishment, and instead they are beginning to worry for their own personal safety as a result of it. I believe that everyone is interested in hearing the reason why from Cameron. In the end, it is the question that everyone wants an answer to. And I believe that whether it is from the family or from the community in general, they want to know why. Why did he act in this manner? Cameron. I believe that the fact that he lied and fabricated these charges against his father reveals some of his character. It reveals some selfishness on his part. It reveals some willingness on his side to attempt to get away with this and I believe that this was evident from the very beginning. I dread the day that he will be allowed to go free. I do. It's true for a good portion of our extended family. There were victim impact statements from family members living on the West Coast and family members living in the South of the United States. They are all quite worried about us due to the fact that, in all likelihood, he will be set free one day. When it comes to this topic, I'm not entirely sure that I agree with Graham. It seems to me, at the very least, that Cameron has a significant need for psychological examination and help, far more than he need to be feared. There is no question that this does not negate the fact that he murdered both of his parents, and it is extremely risky to follow in his footsteps because of the unpredictability of his behavior. However, 
Seeing the entire hour-long video of his interrogation reveals a man who is really sorry for what he did but cannot fully appreciate or accept the gravity of his conduct. In contrast to this, Cameron did not respond immediately. Rather, he deliberated over the concept for close to an hour before doing anything. During this time, he came to the conclusion that his strategies were callous and uncaring. It's a topic that's guaranteed to generate a lot of debate because it's so thought-provoking, and I look forward to hearing everyone's take on it. Nevertheless, regardless of the viewpoint you take, you will reach the same result. As the sun begins to set, we think about Dave and Merrill, who were the true victims in this situation. The beginning of Cameron's life was difficult for him for reasons that are not fully understood. However, Dave and Merrill were there to lend a helping hand and offer him a second opportunity. They took Cameron in as their own when he was just a newborn, and they have loved him without condition through all of the highs and lows of his life. They were there for him each and every step of the way, beginning with the very first time he was able to stand on his own and continuing all the way through his high school graduation. Dave and Merrill have committed the past two decades of their lives to Cameron, but their affection and concern for him will be spit in their faces in the most brutal and indifferent way that is humanly conceivable. We are relieved that this matter has been settled. This is a terrible tragedy that has befallen a family. We never in our wildest dreams imagined that we would ever find ourselves in such a predicament. Dave and Merrill will be remembered fondly by their many friends and family members, as well as by their church family. And a lot of the people who loved Cameron before will hold a grudge against him from now on. When Cameron reaches the age of 42, he will be eligible for parole and could be released from prison. The authorities do feel that he can be rehabilitated. But first, he will have to spend the next quarter of his life in horrible solitude. This is the price that must be paid for murdering the people who loved you the most. I cannot thank you enough for giving this matter the attention it deserves today. If you found this investigation to be intriguing or if you acquired new knowledge, then don't forget to give it a like and sign up for our channel. If you haven't already, I'll wrap it up here for you folks. I'm looking forward to reading your feedback in the comment box, which is located below. Do you believe that you've served enough time in prison after completing 20 years? Or do you believe that a psychological evaluation would be more useful in addressing this issue? Please accept my sincere gratitude for today, and know that I look forward to our next opportunity to work together on a case. However, until that day comes, I ask that you all continue to look out for each other and keep yourselves safe. Thank you and farewell.